The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. This morning we continue to grow through the Gospel of Matthew. Now we're in chapter 8. And in today's passage, we will encounter three people who are suffering. One of the encounters was just read for us. All three of the people we'll encounter in today's passage really existed and really endured very difficult suffering. And that topic then raises a discussion that normally we try to avoid having. How do we think through suffering? How do we think through sickness? How do we think through death? Perhaps those are things we can avoid for long seasons of our life, but no one can avoid them very long. And you may even be in a situation where you're experiencing them now or frequently around them. It's not uncommon at all for me to receive a call to ask for prayer for someone who seems to be stuck in a terrible situation. It's also not uncommon at all for me to be sitting at the bedside of someone who dies within a week's time. Also, it's not uncommon to see suffering that's existed in someone's life for years. A couple weeks ago, a woman came to our church building in the middle of the week who is homeless, looking for a place to stay, and was sharing her story about where she grew up and what she's endured. I praise God our church partners with Urban Ministries, a place we were able to send her to where she could find a place to stay and live. But I also talked to her about more than her physical condition. And a large part of the reason I did so was because of the passage we're going to look at today and other passages like it. But when we see suffering, and we're experiencing it perhaps ourselves, we may wrestle with very difficult questions. Maybe we haven't even said them out loud. How can God be good and powerful and there be any point to the kind of suffering that is existing in this world? Well, I I probably can't say everything that could be said on that topic this morning, but perhaps a few brief thoughts would be helpful. First, we should acknowledge there are many things that we can't see, but just because we don't see them doesn't mean there isn't something actually happening. The philosopher Elvin Platinga illustrated that this way. There's apparently an insect called noceums. Maybe you've heard of them. (laughs) You get in your tent and you're ready to have a great camping trip and you wake up with bites, but you never saw an insect. But that doesn't mean it wasn't there. Similarly, there are purposes that God may have that we can't always know or see. Let me put the matter this way. If you believe there's a God big enough and transcendent enough that he should be able to fix evil, then isn't he also big enough and transcendent enough that he may have purposes for it that we can't fully understand? I mean, you can't have it both ways, right? In fact, on the few moments in life where with the benefit of hindsight, we look back over our suffering, haven't there been many moments of suffering that you now look back on and say, ah, I see the value of that now. Perhaps the best example of that in the Bible is Joseph. If you're not familiar with him, he was wrongly by his brothers sold into slavery. Then as he was in slavery, he was wrongly accused of something and thrown in prison. And in all those years, Joseph didn't know all the things God would do over the next millennia to preserve a people through which to send his son to preserve the nation of Israel. He's not aware of all of that. But all of that's actually happening. 
And yet the little window we have could help us a bit. Furthermore, if you're in a season where you're looking at suffering and you're thinking, how could God even be? I would encourage you to pause and think for a minute. If you think some things are wicked and unjust and they should be made right, that the world should be having a place where justice exists, then that means you believe that there is transcendental right and wrong and does that not imply a created design and a need for a creator to make all things right? In fact, for C.S. Lewis, that was the first clue that drove him from a life of atheism to trust in Christ. But I don't want to get overly philosophical because I know that suffering for many people is not a theoretical question. It's a personal pain. And so if we're in that great heartache, then actually today's passage is very needed for us. Because why did Jesus heal? Why would Jesus heal? I want to first show you where you're going. We're in Matthew 8. Look down at verse 17. We're going to go through 1 through 17 today, okay? And here's where verse 17 is going to take us. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Why did Jesus heal? To take our illnesses and bear our diseases. But what is that healing really showing? And here's where a careful read is very helpful. God superintended the authors of Scripture, and they have their own unique flavors. Matthew's one of my favorite authors because he's very, very precise. And he does something here, literarily, that I'm going to show to you on the screen, but just to tell you what it is. It's called an inclusio. An inclusio in literature is when you put a theme statement at the beginning and a theme statement at the end, like two bookends to include a section of material. Let me show them to you on the screen. This is Matthew 4, verse 23. This is the first inclusio. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now here's the second inclusio, Matthew 9, 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Do those look familiar? It's because they're the same. What does that inclusio have in the middle of it? Do you know? The Sermon on the Mount, the teaching, chapter 5, 6, and 7, and then the healing, chapter 8 and 9. And what are the purpose of the teaching and the healing? They have the same purpose. What does the text say? To proclaim the gospel. So why did Jesus heal? For the same reason Jesus taught. To proclaim the gospel. So what is he doing in his healing? He's showing us his power as king to bear our illnesses and bear our diseases. So with that knowledge, we understand what the gospel of the kingdom is. It's a message about a king who dies for his enemies so that he can purchase for them the very kingdom that through faith they can receive. I'll quote one pastor who writes, what the gospel announces is something that the physical healings merely symbolize or point to. The gospel announces something more vital, more lasting, more momentous, more real than temporary relief from the pains of earthly affliction. The gospel gives us the only true and abiding remedy for sin and all its guilts and repercussions. Or as I like to put it, Jesus heals to show Jesus saves. 
And this morning, we're going to see the king who heals and saves and bears our suffering in his body. Now, Matthew, I just told you, is a very precise writer. John told us in his gospel that if he was to record all of the healings Jesus did, he would run out of paper. (laughs) So Matthew only records nine healings of the thousands that Jesus no doubt performed. And of the nine healings that Matthew records, he groups them into three groups of three. This morning is the first group of three. And the theme of this first group of three, what you'll notice all three of these suffering people have in common is they are isolated outcasts. So now we're ready for the notes. Number one, Jesus and the outcast leper. So please look in God's word, Matthew 8, verse 1. And these three healings will show us something about our Savior that we need to know, especially when we are suffering. Matthew 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, the mountain where he did what? Preach the Sermon on the Mount, right? So right after he finishes teaching, he comes down, and not surprisingly, great crowds are now following him. And with these great crowds following him, he's now going to do in action what he's been teaching. Verse 2. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, this leper, I just said, what the three sufferers of this passage have in common is that they're isolated. I don't know how much you know about the Old Testament, but the Old Testament explains that if you're a leper, You live in your own separate colony. And anywhere you would go, you have to shout, unclean, unclean, because of fear of contamination, and no one can ever get close to you. But perhaps in 2021, we are more able to relate to this than any other time in our lifetimes. A couple months ago, I was at Food Lion off of Lead Mine with my kids. And I was wearing a mask, but my kids were in the cart, and my younger kids are not wearing a mask. And I turned a corner, and a lady who was about 20 feet away was so afraid that my kids were coming close that she opened the freezer door to hide herself (laughs) as we were walking by. Now, I don't know that lady's whole life story, and I'm not mad at her. But I know for that moment, I thought, man... People are that afraid. People don't want to be around me that badly. They're going to step into the freezer. (laughs) Can you imagine if that was your whole life? That your whole life was the last two years. No one wants to get close to you. No one wants to be near you. Anytime you come close, people look at you as if you are a ticking time bomb that might kill them. That was a leper's life. So a leper's life is one of isolation, one where they can't ever feel that they're close to anyone else. Now, how will Jesus respond to someone like that? Look in verse 2. Behold, the leper came to him and knelt before him. And I want you to notice the leper's prayer before we see Jesus' response. I love his prayer. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. What a great prayer. Lord, I know you can do this. Lord, I submit it to your desire, if you will. Lord, I know my need, which is why I've come before you and knelt before him. What will Jesus do to someone who is unclean and who's an outcast and who everybody else wants to be away from? Look in verse 3. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Now we know It was just read for us with the centurion. Jesus doesn't have to touch you to heal you. He can just speak the word and you're healed. So why would Jesus touch him? Because Jesus is taking his 
uncleanness. Don't forget where verse 17 has taken us. Surely he has borne our illnesses and carried our diseases. Jesus is choosing to do what he doesn't have to do. He's choosing to touch the untouchable. He's choosing to draw near to the outcast. He's choosing to take the uncleanness of a man who is outcast from society. What more beautiful words can we hear than our Savior saying, I will. I love that in verse 3. Lord, if you will, I will. Lord, you can be clean. Jesus touches him, bears his illness. And now notice how the verse continues. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Notice Jesus took the man's uncleanness and Jesus immediately gave the man cleanness. Jesus takes on him what is unclean and gives to the man what is permanently clean. And so notice now verse four. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. This is sometimes called by scholars the messianic secret. Jesus doesn't want people following him to misunderstand the real purpose that he's come for, which is more than just the physical healing. So the verse continues, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Again, some knowledge of the Old Testament helps here. If you were a leper that thought you were clean enough in the Old Testament, the policy to get back into society was to first go to the temple and be pronounced clean by a priest. That's why he's referring to Moses. So the Old Testament law required a stamp of approval, and that's what he's simply asking the man to do. So go get confirmation so you can rejoin society. So first, the outcast leper. But now secondly, Jesus and the outcast centurion. Verse 5. And when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Verse 7. And Jesus said to him, again, these beautiful two words, I will. But now the key word, come. I will come and heal him. Why is come such a big word? All right, so when the leper came to Jesus, Jesus did what he didn't have to do. He touched him and took his uncleanness. When the centurion comes to Jesus on behalf of a servant who's suffering, he's suffering watching someone else suffer, Jesus offers to do what he doesn't have to do. He offers to come in person. Why is that such a big deal? Because in the Old Testament, it was considered ceremonially unclean to come into the house of a Gentile. In fact, this comes up again in Acts chapter 10, verse 28, where Peter says this. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But by that point in Acts 10, God had showed me, Peter continues, that I should not call any person common or unclean. So now two times in a row, Jesus has done what is beyond what is necessary He has touched the person who is a leper and unclean, and he is now offered to go into the home of a person who would be considered off limits. What's the lesson? Now, you could stop at this point and say, well, maybe the lesson is that if you're at your school cafeteria and there's a kid sitting all by himself, you should go sit with him. And that is surely a very nice principle. But that is not the point of Matthew 8. In Matthew 8, Jesus is intentionally taking uncleanness on himself to again show what verse 17 has taken us to. 
that he will bear our illnesses and our diseases. So at this point in the text, we should not be saying, I should go and sit with people who are outcasts so that I can be a nice person. No, we should be thinking at this point in the text, I am unclean and I need someone who's willing to take my uncleanness. Inside of us should be a prayer bubbling, Lord, if you will, I know you can. And see, the centurion has enough humility to know that about himself. So let's keep reading verse 8. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy. Do you remember how the Sermon on the Mount begins? What's the first thing Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 3? Whose is the kingdom of heaven? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Exactly. See, here now, fleshed out in person is the exact thing Jesus has been teaching. Who are those who receive the kingdom? Those who realize they're not worthy, but come to me for cleansing. So verse 8, the centurion replied, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. And now a man who is a Gentile and probably didn't grow up with the Old Testament has a better picture of the Messiah than his contemporaries. Look in verse 9. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Do you see what the centurion is saying? I'm in charge of a 100 soldiers. And when I tell them to do something, they do it. Why? Because behind me is Caesar's authority himself. So Jesus, I know that all you have to do is speak the word. Because when Jesus speaks, God speaks. See, the centurion catches something about Jesus that most of Jesus' followers still were grappling with. Who is this man? The centurion knows he's God the Son in flesh. So all he has to do is speak. And that's why in verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. No one else in Israel was grasping This is God's authority, and no one else in Israel is willing to say, I am unworthy, but I need you. See, it's hard to ask for healing if you think you're already clean. And it's hard to ask for the great physician if you don't realize you're sick. But see, the centurion gets it, as did the leper, but many will not. So look in verse 11. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Praise God, many will come to faith in Christ. But verse 12, many will not because the sons of the kingdom, he's here referring to the nation of Israel, those who originally expected that they would inherit the kingdom, many of them will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Unlike many of our churches in America, Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. He was unafraid to describe it with particularity because he knew love warns people of the wrath so that they can escape it. Notice some qualities here about a place of conscious torment for those who don't go to heaven. It's a place of outer darkness. That's why hell is talked about as a place where you don't see anyone else ever, isolated. It's also talked about as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place where the pain is real and recurring. But again, this is not God's intent. God has sent his son, not so that the world would be condemned, but so that the world through him might be saved. 
but the world will only be saved when it prays a prayer like the leper. Lord, I know you can. So if you will, make me clean. And that requires us to be poor in spirit. So in verse 13, to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done. Why? For as you have believed, and the servant was healed at that very moment. So two people that are suffering, both of them are outcasts, both of them are suffering in an isolated condition. The centurion is an outsider. The leper is an outsider. And now third will meet Jesus and an outcast woman, a woman suffering by herself. Verse 14, and when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law. Have you ever wondered if Peter was married? Here you go. <laughs> yes, he was. He saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Now notice Jesus again will do what is beyond what he needs to do. Verse 15, he touched her hand, taking her illness on himself, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him again. The healing is miraculous and immediate. And that healing then continues into the evening. So verse 16, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. But now again, we're given the reason. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So why did Jesus heal? to give a window into his power to, build our, to bear our illnesses and carry our sorrows. In short, Jesus healed to show that Jesus saves far beyond just the physical illnesses we have, but the full consequences of our sin. And how did Jesus do that? You know what Matthew eight seventeen is quoting? It's quoting Isaiah 53 which says in verse four, surely he has borne our illnesses and carried our diseases. But then the verse continues to say, but we considered him smitten by God and afflicted. But in fact, he was not smitten by God or afflicted because he had never done anything wrong. So why was he put to punishment? Why, verse five, because he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He was wounded and we were healed because all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Do you understand that at the cross, Jesus isn't showing us how much he loves us. It's not an act of empathy or symbolism. On the cross, Jesus is actually taking our sins punishment on his body and removing it so that we don't ever have to fully bear it if we come to him in faith. You see, the fact is that we are unclean. Jesus will come back to this in Matthew 15. There's a debate over what defiles a person, what makes them unclean. Some people think you're unclean by ceremonial activity. Jesus says, no, what defiles a person comes within. Have you ever heard the Bible verse, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's where this verse is from. And in that context, Jesus says, what comes out of our mouth is what comes out of our heart. And what's in our heart is, according to Jesus, Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. You see, when we see someone sick, when we see someone suffering, we see the observable collateral symptoms of sin's curse. But sin's curse is also at work within us. 
And just as sin's cure for suffering is found ultimately in the one who bears it, so sin's corruption is found in its cure, the one who takes our corruption on his body. That's why Isaiah says it this way. Your sins, which are crimson, can be washed as white as snow. The healing touch that Jesus gives to the leper is the same healing touch that Jesus offers us in the gospel. It is the healing touch that cleans us. So first I ask you, have you ever prayed the prayer of the leper? Look again in verse two. Have you ever come to God like this? Lord, if you will, you can make me clean with the confidence that you need to be cleaned in the most full sense of your sin and with the confidence that Jesus can heal it and Jesus can take it away. That prayer is an example to us of how someone receives the salvation Christ provides. But let me come back to where we began. We all grapple with suffering. We all grapple with loss. We all grapple with death. So this passage should be a healing balm for us because why did Jesus heal? So that he could bear our illnesses and bear our diseases. You see, why did God become flesh? So that he could suffer. So that he could die. If you ever feel like your suffering is pointless, have you ever stopped to think, God cares so much about your suffering, he willingly entered into it himself. Jesus bore in his body our suffering so that he would know in a way that we never could how seriously suffering is. In fact, on the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Feeling the eternal separation that we feel on a smaller scale. But Jesus healed to show Jesus saves. So when you go to Jesus in prayer for suffering you're experiencing, pray that he will take that suffering away. But know that even if he does not, that his good and wise purpose will ultimately be revealed in the final day when even that suffering is removed and all things are made new. And understand that the purpose of that suffering and pain will ultimately remind us of the king who in amazing love chose to personally bear our misery on himself. Therefore, we can always trust his loving wisdom even if we don't understand the experience we're in. So our suffering may have a purpose that we don't fully grasp, but we can fully trust. But what we can fully know is our suffering was placed on the only innocent person who then chose to take the effects and the cause of sin in his own body so that he could bear it and remove it. And we can receive that if we simply pray a prayer like the leper. Lord, if you will, You can make me clean. Let us go to the Lord now and ask him to carry out what he alone can do. Dear God, I thank you for the king who heals and saves. Lord, I thank you for the king who chooses to suffer. And Lord, he alone suffers perfectly righteously. I know that suffering is not just a philosophical conundrum. It is often personally, viscerally painful. And no doubt, because we live in a sin-cursed world, many people today are in a season of great suffering. And right now, that may feel pointless to them. 
Remind them that just like Joseph didn't know the whole story, so you are weaving a perfect whole story and our life counts and the suffering counts and how you grow us matters for this life and the life to come. Perhaps others look at the suffering in this world and conclude how can there be a God and how can he be good? But Lord, point them to the cross to realize that the God did not remain distant, but came and chose to take suffering on his own body, even though he did not deserve it. But he took the suffering of our sin so that we wouldn't eternally have to suffer. So thank you for a God who comes and touches lepers. Thank you, Lord, for a God who's willing to go to the home of a centurion. Thank you for a God who touches a woman that everybody else had forgotten about. And thank you for a God who can heal. But even if he doesn't heal the current struggle we're in, we know that he saves. And so we know that ultimate healing comes. This picture showed the centurion who Jesus really was. May it show us today who we go to when we pray. The person who has the authority of everything under heaven and earth, all power given into his name. And in the name of Jesus, may we in faith trust what you can do, ask what you will do, but have confidence in the long picture of what you are doing for our good and for your glory. In Christ I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.